Amen. Now let's continue through the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 4, verses uh, 27 through 42. These are the words of God. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Father in heaven, these words reveal the heart of Jesus Christ, his love for the lost, and his love to gather disciples to join with him in the salvation of the world. Let the preaching of your word align our hearts and minds with Jesus. Do this by the power of your spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we saw in the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Turns out she's not just a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman. She is uh, ethnically despised by the Jews. And not only that, she appears to be even despised by her own people. She comes and gathers water or gets water at the well at a time when people wouldn't normally come. She's by herself. Turns out that she has been married multiple times, probably divorced several times, despised by her community in some way. She's been shunned in, in some kind of way. And Jesus speaks to her words of life. Jesus offers this woman um, that, that she could ask of him and receive eternal uh, living waters that, that spring up into eternal life. And this woman asks questions, does not understand what Jesus is saying, just as so many, as we've seen in the, in the, in the gospel already. Um, but Jesus persists and tells her um, and, and shows her that he knows all about her. He even knows the dark side of her the very dark side of her. She's amazed by this and begins to ask questions about, about religion, about where should we worship. And Jesus, again, directs that conversation to her heart um, and to the hearts of all of us. That if we're going to worship God, we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. That is, by means of God's spirit being in us and by means of the truth laid out for us in the scripture. And she leaves um, then in this passage we see to go and tell um, her, her, her people, I, I've met someone, I think he might be the Messiah. He's, he's told me everything about me. He knows all about me. And this is so true of Jesus Christ. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about you and yet he calls you to come to himself and, and receive waters that spring up and overflow into eternal life. That's what is offered to each one of us even though Jesus Christ knows the deepest and darkest parts of us. 
He calls us. The disciples don't get it, just as we often don't get it. Um, and now they come, and, they, and we come to this place where the disciples now return to him. And in this, in this portion, we're, we're seeing, and, and through this gospel, we're seeing that Jesus, the Word made flesh, was the creator of the world, and he's the redeemer of all of the world. I want you to keep a, a verse from Isaiah chapter 49 in your mind as we go through this. Um, in, in, that, in that prophecy, the Lord is speaking, and, and he says, Indeed, he says, the Lord, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Now, I, when, when Isaiah is recording this, so the, the father is speaking to the servant, and we know the servant is the Messiah. So the Lord is speaking prophetically to the Son. The Father is speaking to the Son. And he's looking at the the day when Israel would be restored, when Israel would be brought back. And God the Father is saying, it's not enough. It's it's too small a thing that I would just give you Israel. And so he goes on, he says, um, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Remember that in chapter 3, we saw that um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But we also said that for, for, God loved, for the Father loved the Son and therefore gave the world to him. It was not enough. It's not enough for the Father just to give him a little smattering of the world over here. A few, a few Israelites and maybe a couple of Gentiles sprinkled in. It's not enough. It's too small of a thing. The Father wants to glorify the Son so much that he gives him the world. And this picture of what's going on with the Samaritan woman is not supposed to be just about this one woman, but about all of us, about the Gentiles, about all who would call upon the name of the Lord, about all whom God would choose, about all that he would call to himself. How many would he call? Of how many, from how many nations is he going to call? It's too small a thing. It's too small a thing that it would just be a smattering. And as we, as we go through this Advent season, this longing to see Christ, this longing to see his full and complete redemption. I I want to see it more and more in in my own sanctification and in the sanctification of my brothers and sisters here, but in the sanctification of the world, of, of the bringing in of this great harvest that is promised. Well, that's what Jesus is going to speak about here. There were fields, he says, white for harvest, right there in a Samaritan town, and it never crossed the minds of the disciples. They, they walk through the city, just as we might walk through a city, any city, and think, there, there are no Christians here. God isn't going to save anyone here. Look at this place. Look at what they're given to. Look at the kinds of gods they serve. God would never have anything to do with them. And Jesus has something to say to us about that. Something to say to us about his love for the world. Something to say for us, to us as disciples who are to imitate him as well. There are fields here as well that are white for harvest. Jesus would ask you, do you see them? Do you see them? Well, so first of all, let's look at what the disciples don't see. Even the best of the followers of Jesus can miss what Jesus is doing in the most mundane, normal, everyday times of life. There was no evangelism strategy as they came into Sychar. It was just a place to rest and get food. Um, and in order to travel from Judea, from Jerusalem, or the area that Jesus was outside of Jerusalem, um, baptizing and, um, and, and gathering disciples there, to travel up to Galilee was about a two-full-day a two journey um, of walking about 30 miles. Um, and as, they, as they're walking during this time, they, it's, it's a midday, it's warm, it's hot, and they stop in Sychar where Jesus rests. He's tired, he's wearied. 
from this long journey that he's on. And as he stops um, to, to, get for, uh, to get food, it's not like he's, he has, at least he hasn't spoken to the disciples about some kind of evangelistic strategy about how we're not going to reach the, the town of Sychar. Here's how we're going to do it. No, he just sits down and waits um, to get a drink from this woman who comes to the well while the, um, while the disciples have gone off to get food from the city. So they left Jesus sitting, and they went into the city to get some lunch. And when they return, they find Jesus speaking to this Samaritan woman, and they're flabbergasted. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came in, and they marveled. They marveled that he's talking with this woman. But for some reason, we're not told why, they don't say to him, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? And we're told then that the woman leaves, and then they just turn and kind of leave that whole situation. Jesus was talking to this woman. Never mind, we've got food. Rabbi, you need to eat, verse 31. Rabbi, you need to eat. That's what's important. And so Jesus wants to point out to them that there are two things that they don't see immediately. They don't see um, what, what real food is to eat, that there was to eat right there. And also they don't see a readied harvest that is ready to be taken. They don't see. Jesus said to them answers when he says, Rabbi, eat. Jesus says, I have food to eat which you do not know. And again, he's completely misunderstood. They say, hey, wait a second, verse 33. Did some, maybe someone already brought him something to eat. He says, I have food to eat which you don't know. He's like, was he carrying something with him? Did he have, you know, some power bars in his pocket or something? What's, what's going on here? And, and Jesus continues on um, to, to explain to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Look at verse 34 again. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What is Jesus teaching? What is he saying? One of the most striking things about Jesus is his certainty of who he is and what he was here for. A sense of uh, satisfaction in what his calling was. Now, all of us, I think, can, um, uh, can relate to this idea of trying to figure out who we are, what we're made for, what our purpose is, when we kind of line up with it and we find something that we feel that we're really given to, it, it could be vocation, a job, it could be relationships, it could be being able to use our hands to do certain things. But as we find certain things that we're able to do, there's, there's a great sense of satisfaction that comes with that. And when, when we feel like we're waffling, we, we don't know where we fit in, we don't know why we're here, the pur- we feel purposeless, that's oftentimes a very unsettling thing. Jesus never had that. Jesus had a, a, a sense of being about his father's business that we see in Luke, goes all the way back to at least testified to when he's 12 years old and he's in the temple teaching and, and the, his parents have lost him. They travel for three days looking for him and, and they finally find him back in the temple. And, and Jesus says, I, I, why, I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know why you had such a hard time finding me. I was, I was in my father's house doing his business wouldn't you expect that that's what I would be doing? Well, this shows up over and over again in the Gospel of John, this certainty that Jesus knows what he is to be about. John 5.30 says, I can do nothing, I, I, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So, so part of finding, finding you know, that, that sense of, of great satisfaction in life that that's food to the soul is knowing you're doing the father's will you're, you're doing god's will john 3 uh, 6 38 jesus says for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me 
That's going to be very important when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? When, for a moment, he is going to question, is this, is this really the way we have to go, God? Is this really what is going to satisfy that I've got to go to the cross? Is there any other way yet not my will, but your will be done? He's set on the Father's will. John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. While I'm here upon this earth, I need to be doing exactly what God's will is for me. God's fa- the, the Father's will is for me. In John 17, 4, I have glorified you on, on the earth. Jesus is praying. I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And of course, on the cross, you'll hear Jesus' last words, it is finished as he finishes that, the work that the Father gave him to do. So Jesus knew and, and had this great confidence of what he was to be about. So much so, he, he, it, it gives him such satisfaction that it acted like food and drink to his body. His weariness, his thirst and hunger were forgotten. You've noticed that. That's happened to you. When you are, again, when you're so um, driven by something, you're so excited about something, you're so satisfied in doing something that all of a sudden you, you look at the clock and you, can't re- you don't realize how late it is. Or, or you realize you've missed a meal or a couple meals because you've been so intensely driven to that thing that, has been, uh, that, that you've been attending to. Well, that's, that's what Jesus thinks about saving souls. Imagine, imagine the point at which you're the most satisfied in the kind of thing that you, you do for a living or with your life. That's how Jesus feels when he's saving souls. It is, it's food to his soul. It's food to his soul. So, and remember, it was, the joy that was set, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, Hebrews 12, upon which he said of his father's work and will, it is finished. It was for the joy that was set before him. It's not that the Father's will was always easy. It's not that the Father's will was always, um, in, in his flesh, something that was wonderful. No, sometimes it was horrible. It was hard. But it was the Father's will, and he knew for the joy set before him to endure it, to press on. He trusted his Father. He knew his Father, and he knew his Father's will. Jesus, it turns out, Jesus really likes saving souls. It's like food for his soul. So there's great satisfaction for Christ, first of all, because of his love for his father, because of his connection to his father, his submission to his father and his father's will. It's great satisfaction for him to do that which his father wants him to do. And secondly, it's, it's great satisfaction because he simply loves what he's been called to do, which is to save people from their sins to save you from your sins. Don't ever get over this. There's, you really need to think about this often, maybe at least every Christmas. Do you realize that God really likes saving you, forgiving you, reestablishing you to the Father, bringing you to the Father, pouring out his blood to, to, to forgive your sins? Jesus really likes doing that. He really likes giving you new life. He's not holding his nose and saying, okay, I'm going to let you in also because, I don't know, God chose you, I guess. I don't know what he was thinking. This never goes through his mind. That's not, that's not it's, it's on our mind sometimes. Sometimes someone might straggle into our church and you might think, well. Or someone in your family, some relative, maybe distant, maybe quite near, and you're like, I don't know that 
God would ever really be interested in that one. Jesus loves saving sinners, like the woman at the well, like the Samaritan woman. Life in the Father's will was satisfying, and yet there was no personal pride in it at all. Jesus didn't care who he was seen with. He just didn't care. He, he didn't care here when he was at the well with the woman. He didn't care anywhere else. In Matthew 9, um, the Pharisees see him and they say to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, I thought he was a rabbi. Matthew eleven nineteen, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, but wisdom is justified by her children. I'll show you why I've come. Matthew 19, 13, and 14, then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Get out of the way, kids. Kids, get out of the way. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loves the little ones. Jesus loves the dirty ones. Jesus loves the broken ones. Jesus loves the despised ones. Jesus loves the scorned ones. Jesus loves the world. And so, that, but in so much so that it is this great satisfying food for him. The disciples don't see it. Christ's disciples often don't see this. What they also don't see is that there's a readied harvest right around them, ready to pick right now. Jesus tells the disciples that this kind of food is all around, a harvest readied for reaping. Look again at verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? That, that would be a common uh, phrase, possibly a kind of a daily, uh, a proverbial thing of the day. You've planted the seed and now you know there's four months until the harvest. It's not ready yet. It, possibly that was the time period that this was actually taken, it, taken in. But re- regardless, Jesus says, I know you understand that there's a time that a harvest isn't ready, but I want you to know we're here in Sychar, guys, and the fields are white for harvest. It's ready to go. And you just imagine the disciples going, Sychar? Samaria? What are you talking about? But Jesus says, look, if you have eyes to see, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So these, these verses prove that Jesus was right in, in, in Sychar, but certainly God has been at work and is sowing in all kinds of ways all over the world. As, as, as the gospel goes forth in the book of Acts, it, there, there is such this, this radical transformation taking place in city after city and town after town, such that at one point it is it's said in Acts 17, 6, that the world has been turned upside down by the work of these same disciples by these apostles and then those who follow them in the early church. The church was able to go out and and reap a harvest that the world saw was changing things, and in fact, um, challenging things as well. And so um, this is, the, the whole world had been changed then through the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of the souls, and it has gone on for centuries as well. We should see, we should take heed of Jesus' words. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. This takes eyes of faith. 
And I believe it can be a part of your daily prayer with expectations that God would lead you to those ready to see Christ in you and hear the good news. How often do you go through a day or a week or a month and it never occurs to you that there's a, there's a, there's a, har- a white harvest right in front of you? That there is somebody right now ready to hear the gospel ready to hear your testimony about how Jesus forgave your sins and how you have a hope for eternal life that that is able to overshadow all that goes on in this life. In fact, you're able to see, you're able to see with eyes and faith that as God's taking you through life, you know, you believe, you trust that he's using this to weave together this grand story, not of your salvation, but of, of, of being able to join with him in glory forever and so much more of the world to come in. And, and be able to say to someone, and you can have that too. How many times does a day or a week or a month go by? It doesn't even cross your mind. How many times have you walked by that coworker and never even thought, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Maybe it's time to hear, um, and maybe it's time to practice even in such a way that, that you would say as you get up in the morning, Lord, would you lead me to the harvest that is white and ready? There are people out there, apparently, that there's been sowing that's already going on. And all that needs to happen now is someone to come and reap. Now, it's, it's true. In Corinthians, Paul will say that uh, I, I sowed and Apollos, I planted Paulus waters, and it's God who does the reaping. In one sense, it's God who does the reaping. Actually, in some sense, it's God who does the sowing as well, right? So, so God uses us to do the, the planting. God uses us to do the, the watering. God uses us to, to plant seeds, and God uses us to harvest. It's him doing the harvesting. But what if your mindset, maybe even, what, what if your mindset was to be something like, God, as I'm getting up today, what's my purpose? What's going to satisfy me more than being in the will of the Father? Maybe there are seeds to plant. Maybe there is watering to be done. Maybe there's a harvest to be done. The disciples didn't see it. And Jesus is teaching them, and we are his disciples, and he's teaching us that we ought to be prepared, more prepared than we are. Not not just prepared, uh, and we should be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. So you should be able to to give a simple gospel presentation. You should be able to give a a simple version of your testimony, being able to share how you know that Christ has saved you, changed you, forgiven you, completed you. Pointed you in the right direction finally. Reconciled you to the God of all creation. You ought to be able to give some kind of a testimony to that. Yes. But you also ought to be prepared in your heart with the same kind of longing and hunger that only is fulfilled when you get to share that, when you get to be that to those around you. And I'm not saying here that all of us have to become what we think of in our mind as evangelists. No, no, actually, and we'll talk about this. I, I, I think what it means is we just need to be normal. We just need to be ourselves. We just need to be light. And we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. We're the salt of the world. Jesus says so. We just need to be ourselves. We just need to not hide hide our our light under a bushel. We just need to open our mouth. We just need to give give praise to God and and, and thanks to him for what he's done for us. So the the people, uh, the disciples did not see the food that was there to eat that Jesus had that satisfied him. And the food that was offered to them, the satisfaction that was offered to them, the white harvest that was ready to be reaped and brought in. 
Now, what do the, 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 the disciples don't see this, but what do the S- Samaritans then receive instead? Remember that, the, the, again, this, this huge contrast between Nicodemus, the uber-moral Jew, knows God's law perfectly and comes and questions Jesus, and the Samaritan woman, who's all mixed up with a kind of a syncretistic religion and an immoral life. Nicodemus, you would expect, would be the one that Jesus would be kind of bringing on to come alongside him and, and go minister and be the witness, right? Nicodemus, just like, uh, uh, just like um, Isaiah would say, you know, are you, are you going to send me, Lord? You know, or, or Moses would say, I, I, I'm not sure that I should go and see uh, and go speak to Pharaoh. Why don't you say, send Aaron? How many of us would might say, you know, I, I don't know that I'm really the one, I'm not, I'm not so qualified to be the one that should go and speak. Well, Nicodemus, we would think, would have been the better one. But he, he seemed to just go away silent and burdened. Chapter 3, verse 9 how can this be? That's the last words we hear from Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 9. There's no, there's no reply after all of, uh, all of what Jesus says, and then John comments. It's just, he just goes off into the, uh, fades into the end of the scene. We, we see him later, but he leaves. The unnamed woman hastens away in joyful certainty to be the herald of Jesus' name, verses 28, 29. Then the woman left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all these things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And it's interesting, uh, commentators will talk about when, when it says that she went to the men, did he just mean she went to the people of the city or did she go to the leaders of the city? Possibly she went in and said to the leaders of the city, even to those who might have um, you know, scorned her in many ways, went to those and said, I found somebody, you got to come see this man. You got to come see this man. And it's interesting because he chooses a woman, a Samaritan woman, a despised Samaritan woman. A woman's testimony was not considered valid in a court of law. This woman appears to be shunned by her community. She's an unclean fornicator. How how does this make her a great witness to the grace of God? Oh, now think about that. You think, you think you're too much of a sinner or you're too weak or you don't communicate very well, or whatever. And how does that make you a great witness for the grace of God? Because if someone comes to Christ because of something you say or because of, uh, of something you give them in your life in the name of Christ, a cup of cold water, and they come to Christ, you and they are going to know it's all the grace of God. It's all the grace of God. What does this teach us about who God is willing to save? Anyone that next person that comes into your life. And what does it teach us of our ability to witness to Christ's saving grace? What are your qualifications? Well, have you received the grace of Christ? If you receive the grace of Christ, then you have what Jesus says was, um, was living water that is overflowing out of you. It's just overflowing. You become a conduit. You become a conduit of the grace and testimony of the glory of Jesus Christ in the world around you. That's what you've been given. That's what we should see with this woman. While Jesus has not spoken to you face to face, um, as he did with her about her personal life, certainly his word preached has spoken to you personally about your life. How many times have you sat under the preaching of God's word and had that sense at some moment, was he watching me this week? 
It's as though God was speaking directly to me about my life, about my fears, about what I need to walk away from, about what I need to walk into. It's as though God is speaking directly to me in the preaching of the word. Or you're opening up your word and you're, and you're reading, you're meditating on God's word, and, and you see maybe a passage you've read many times, but it just comes out of the, it just comes out of the word, and you just go, well, this is, this is for me right now. This is what God is speaking to me by his spirit in this word right here, right? Yeah, you don't, it, it is, um, it, is a, it will be a privilege to be before Jesus face to face, but we are still before him very personally by his word, by his sacrament, by, uh, by the community of faith, by the preaching of his word. He, he speaks to you about your personal life. And so we can be like the woman to say to someone, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Let me come and introduce you to someone who knows me all the way down to my heart and loves and forgives and directs me. Let me bring you to someone who is the Messiah, who is the Savior of the world and therefore is your Savior. Let me introduce you to this wonderful man, the Son of God. It's pretty simple, pretty simple. Psalm 66 says, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. There you go. What has he done for your soul? That's, that's how you worship God? by declaring to the world around you what he has done for your soul. And so witness, witnessing is also just a great act of worship as well. And then the blessings are multiplied throughout the city. <laughs> 39 and following, and many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. They finally say, well, we believe not just because of what you said to the woman, but because we heard it from ourselves. So again, a good, a good practice of, of, of how you give testimony is you give testimony about what God has said to you, what God has revealed to you. And then you say, and let me show you from the word. Let me show you so you can see it for yourself, so you can hear it for yourself. And you take them to Christ in that way. In the parable of the soils, in the parable of the four soils that Jesus gives in Matthew 13, Jesus speaks of the seed word which is sown among the good soil, those who hear the word and bears fruit and, produ and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. There is soil that is well prepared for the seed to fall, and then it spreads. Imagine the disciples' surprise when men from the city of Sychar came out to see Jesus. Imagine what they thought. Well, the woman, at least she went. She's gone. We can eat lunch now. And so they're eating lunch. We're not told this in the scriptures. I don't know what happened, but they're eating lunch. And, you know, okay, we're going to get going here pretty soon. <laughs> we got to get, we're going to Galilee. We're going back to our homes, Capernaum and Cana, those areas. That's where they're from. And so they're kind of probably looking forward to getting back there. And they're heading there and about ready to get going, packing things up. And then all of a sudden, there's a bunch of men. There's a bunch of people now coming to the well. What's going on? What did she do? And then they come and they start asking questions and Jesus begins teaching and they sit there and they watch and souls are saved. One seed is scattered and 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold begin to come in. Would they have expected such a group to come to faith in Jesus? And would they care to see them come? <laughs> they weren't their people. They weren't like them. They were unclean. They were different. Would they let him in? Would they let them come with them? 
Would they invite them to be a part of their fellowship? Would they invite them to be a part of their group, their church, their people? Would we? Would we? Are we ready? Do we see, do we see how that, that all races, all tongues, all tribes, and all, everything's leveled at the cross? There's really only, there's one blood. We're all of one blood. And it's all blood that has gone bad through Adam. There's only really two races in the world today. There's only really two peoples. The two peoples ultimately are those who are under the first Adam and those who are under the second Adam. We invite all those in the second Adam to be brothers and sisters with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are told then many believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. They urged Jesus to stay, and he did for two days. And through that time, many more believed because of his own word. In verse 42, it says, um, it, it, it says Then they, they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Over and over, we see the confidence with which John portrays Jesus and the scope of his ministry. John, over and over again through the gospel, is is, is showing that Jesus is not just trying, kind of gave it the old college try, but he came to be the true Savior of the world. John 1, 12. But as many as received them, him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. One twenty nine. The next day, John, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John three thirty five. the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus is Savior of the world in the sense that he is Savior to both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's what's coming out particularly in, in 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4. He is, he is Savior both to the Jew and Gentiles. So therefore, to all peoples, all races, all tongues, all tribes. John's writing his gospel. Think about this. Um, it, he's writing his gospel decades after. It's probably the last gospel written, uh, maybe in the early 50s mid-50s, something like that. So he's writing after several decades, a couple decades at least, of, of, of the growth of the church. He's writing in Ephesus to a mostly Gentile uh, church and, and as he's ministering there, and then to other churches surrounding um, the, the, the Mediterranean and the, and the Gentile world. This is where the, his gospel would have gone first. And as he's doing this, he, 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 he wants to make clear that, that Christ is saving and it's not, it's, he was not just this prophet back in Jerusalem, this, this guy from Nazareth, Nazareth, but then who ministered to the Jews, but that he was savior to the entire world. But he also, he also writes in a political atmosphere where Caesar is Lord and Caesar is the savior of the world is touted. It's proclaimed. It's put on coins. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the savior of the world. And so this claim is political as well, even in our day. He, Jesus Christ is not the king of your heart and the king in your mind, but doesn't, doesn't land anywhere on this earth. Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. Or let me put it this way. He's the governor of all governors. He's the president of all presidents. 
So you could say he's the CEO of all CEOs. He, he, is, he is the one who has all rule and authority over all the institutions of all of mankind. He's not asking for the opportunity to be Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord, and he's confidently ruling at the right hand of God the Father now, having sent his spirit and anticipates expectantly that his church is working on his behalf to manifest the spread of that gospel into every corner of the world. Into every corner of the world. That's what he's doing through us. And so it's, this is true for all creation. Every knee is going to bow. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. But this claim also has to do with the extent, with the extent of Christ's saving and in two ways. First, the extent goes down to the dirtiest, most unclean, most rejected sinner. His forgiving grace surpasses any sin we could imagine or commit. Where sin reigned in death, even more his grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5, the end of that chapter. where Paul is making really just this point. In verse 18, I'm picking it up really in the middle of his argument, but I think it will make sense for the point I want to make. Verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And then he says in verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is an eschatos, there is a a, a telos, an end that is being pointed to as, as Paul is speaking these words. What do I mean by that? He's telling you a story. He's telling you how the story began. Through one man, sin entered the entire world and the entire race of Adam is condemned. And then the law is brought and all it does is reveal that sin all the more. But where, where the law reigned, where sin reigned, grace reigns even more. Follow the story. When you get to the end of the story, grace is reigning even more than the sin. Okay, so what it means is there's not, there is not a sin. There's not a category of sin that grace can't touch, that grace can't envelop, that grace can't transform. There's, there's not any spiritual death that Christ cannot raise you up out of. It's, it is offered to you. It is offered to everyone freely, the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, there's, there's another thing that, that goes beyond the fact that nobody is, is born too dirty. The, the second fact is that the fields are ripe for harvest, and we need to see this world the way Jesus does. He's told us the way this is going to end. He's told us that he is going to fill the earth like a mustard seed. Uh, mustard seed, the smallest seed planted in the garden, becomes the largest tree in the garden. He, he told us that he's going to fill the earth like a, a, a peck of leaven being put in a lump of dough until it spreads and completely affects, changes, transforms the whole lump. He told us that the, that the word is going to go forth and is going to cover the earth. It's going to affect the earth. It's going to change the earth and as much as the waters cover the sea. And how much does the water cover the sea? A lot. 
Wouldn't you say? So this is what Jesus wants us to know. He wants you to see, and, and, it's, and I don't see this. I do not, I do not live this way. I am, I am affected, I am convicted by this passage to look and see the world around me as a world that is ready for picking. A world that is ready for picking. A world that is ready to hear now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for the sins of mankind, that he was buried dead in the grave three days, that he rose from the dead showing that he had power over all sin and death and that our justification was secure in him because everything would have been paid for in his death and that he rose and he sits at God's right hand ascended having poured out his spirit onto this land, onto this generation, onto these people around you. And we, the people of God, this church, have the opportunity to look with eyes of faith and see and see a harvest ready for the picking. See a place where you can go and sow seed, or you can water, or you can plant a little more, or you can reap and see what God does. In the, the, um, another passage to go through is, is Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to the end of the chapter. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly, truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus doesn't look at the world as, as a bunch of, it's not mostly hard, rocky soil. That's not the way he sees the world. He sees the world as mostly good soil. He's been affecting it. Spirit's been convicting the sin, uh, uh, the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit's been out there doing it. Seed's been sowed. Father's done a whole bunch of work through, through, the, through the work of the prophets, through the work of, of sending those who preach the gospel, getting the word out in a number of different ways. And now the church is to go out and bring in the harvest. Bring in the harvest. So with the same confidence as this gospel is teaching, we can be agents of this reaping even in these days. I know it's hard to live in states like Washington today, for a lot of different reasons. I know it is. But don't you think it's hard for a lot of people that are living in Washington to live in Washington without Christ, without hope, without having any sense of purpose or, etern or, or, or eternity? Do you think maybe, do you think maybe he's preparing them and preparing us to go to them? Do you think maybe this could be the days of a wonderful revival and reformation? Could God do that? Could God do that? Or is it too hard? Is it, is it too, are we too lost? We're not too lost. There, the, the, if, 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 if Washington state, if, if, these, if liberal states, if, if these blue states or non-Christian states, whatever you want to call them, 
want to reject the Savior, reject the Messiah, and you want to say, okay, well, we're done with them then. They, they would never change. Well, there was a day you could have said that about me personally. I wasn't worth sharing the gospel to. I wasn't going to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. Not a thing. And God said, I'm really not interested in your opinion, Dave. And he did his great work. He's not really interested in the opinion of Washington State. He's not really interested in the opinion of the stiff-necked unbelievers out there. He's really not interested in the opinion of those who think they can decide for themselves what is good and what is bad, what is evil and what is right. He's not really concerned about their opinion. It doesn't rattle Jesus on the throne. Well, maybe I was wrong here about the definition of marriage. I, I hadn't thought about that. It doesn't rattle Jesus on the throne to, 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 to say, I, you know, maybe, maybe there are more gods than one. I hadn't thought about that. He's not interested in the opinion of unbelief. He's interested in reaping a harvest. And it may, it's, just, it's so clear here as he comes to the city of Sychar. Indeed, God says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. How do we first participate in this harvest? And this is where I want to come back to what I was talking about, normal life, normal Christian life. This world wants to see authenticity. This world wants to see authenticity. Your humble, normal, honest self, rooted in the waters of everlasting life, springing out all through the parts of your life, gives you the confidence to know who you ultimately are and what your life purpose ultimately is to be. You might not know exactly what you're supposed to be doing in every aspect of your life, but you do know. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you do know ultimately what your purpose is on this earth. It is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. It is to be his disciple and follower wherever you go in whatever way you can. And it is to do so out of an abundance of what he is putting and running through you. As you give yourself to Jesus then, unfazed by the things and circumstances of this earth, knowing where you are going to go when you die, and that is so important today, knowing where you're going to go when you die with great confidence, equipped with words of everlasting life for others, you have a sickle in your hand that can be used by God to eternally change your neighbor's life. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Have you been listening? Then who will God bring into your life tomorrow? In the most unlikely places and at the most unlikely times in the most unlikely people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Gracious Father, your love for the world is displayed in the sending of your Son, and your Son loves doing your will, saving the world. And you have shown your love to us, to well-seasoned sinners who do not deserve anything other than your wrath and scorn. Instead, we swim in an ocean of grace. Grant that we would be led to neighbors, friends, family members, co-workers who are ready to be reaped, who are ready to respond to the simple gospel and come to Jesus, even this Christmas season. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.